All right, it is time for the children's message. So kids can be listening. Come on up by your screen if you'd like uh, for our children's message. So one of the things that my boys like to do to stay active is to swim. Raise your hand if you like to swim. Anybody? A number of you. All right. Uh, Because my boys like to swim, they participate in the Rhinelander Swim Club. I know a number of you do as well. So raise your hand if you participate in Rhinelander Swim Club. So we have Gillinghams and Charlie Antonuk and Lila Kader, I see, and Charlotte Price and the Blair Boys. A number of people who participate in the Rhinelander Swim Club, right? So when you participate in Rhinelander Swim Club, there are certain things that you do as part of your participation in that. You'd wear the T-shirt like I have on right now, the Rhinelander Swim Club T-shirt, right? You'd put on your swimsuit. You'd also put on your swim cap. There we go. So I've got my Rhinelander swim cap on, right? There it is. You'd also put on your goggles. All right, there we go. So I'm ready for Rhinelander swim club, right? So you do these things to show your participation in the swim club. I'm going to take those off, folks. They hurt right now. All right. So if you were in Rhinelander Swim Club, would you put on a Tomahawk Swim t-shirt? You wouldn't do that, would you? Would you put on a Medford Swim Club cap? You wouldn't do that, right? No, because you are a participant in the Rhinelander Swim Club, not those other swim clubs. And so today in 1 Corinthians, i take that off too, that's certain hurt. Today in 1 Corinthians, we're going to read about something special that the church does. And that we've talked about before is communion. So during communion, we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And so the Bible says that when we do, those thing, do these things, when we take the bread and take the cup, that is a participation in Jesus Christ. Taking the cup is a participation in the blood of Christ. Taking the bread is a participation in the body of Christ. And so as followers of Jesus... We are participants in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. We are participants. uh, We have been participants with Christ in his death. We are participants in Christ in his resurrected life. And we will be participants with Christ forever and ever. And because of that, we are to have participation with nothing else, no other idolatry, no false gods. We aren't supposed to have any participation with those things because we are participants of Jesus Christ. And so if you're at Rhinelander Swim Club, there are certain things you do as part of your participation there. And it's similar to communion and taking the cup and the bread as a participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you're at Rhinelander Swim Club, you don't participate in Tomahawk Swim Club or Medford Swim Club. In a similar way, when you're a participant in Christ, you don't participate in idols or false gods because we participate in the one true God. And so God is holy. He is very different than anything else, and he alone is worthy of our worship. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach, so keep on listening. All right. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. Uh, that was interesting. <laughs> uh, he's, he's very good at that. We appreciate it. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 to 22, if you turn there with me. Um, those of you who do decide to come and worship with us at either 9 or 1045 next Sunday, if you'd bring your own Bibles, we'll be removing the Bibles from the seats. Uh, that's one of the recommended steps and keeping touching from happening that we don't have to sanitize them all and so forth and so please remember that it's a good thing to do anyways and so this is another helpful part of what's going on and reminded we need to take our bibles with us so first corinthians 10 15 to 22 um i i was at one time a, a very avid duck hunter haven't been as much in recent years with the kids but um, one of the things duck hunters sometimes differentiate is between local birds and northern or migratory birds. When the northern birds come through, the hunting can get fantastic. They haven't been uh, hunted very much, and so they're more easy to decoy. The locals, on the other hand, are often very difficult. They know the lake well. They 
seen every kind and shape of decoy. They've been shot at. And so they're very wise to the game. They, it, it seems, know if there's one cattail bent in the wrong way that wasn't the previous day. And say so they, they know their lake very intimately. Or maybe uh, think about this like a mother. Uh, if you have a group of mothers together and their children are off playing together and one child begins to cry, the mother not only knows which child is hers, but knows by the tone of the cry whether or not something's really wrong. Mothers know their children intimately. Their ears are specifically tuned to the frequency of their child and to the tone of their child. They know their child intimately. They've carried this child in their womb. They've nursed this child. They, they know the child intimately. The letter to 1 Corinthians is this kind of pastoral intimacy for the people of that local church. Uh, I've said from the beginning of preaching this sermon, I don't know how many sermons we've done on this so far, 40, 50 maybe, um, and, and we've covered it a few years in it on and off. But I, I said that maybe the main reason I wanted to preach it isn't necessarily the topics in 1 Corinthians 10, although they're very helpful, um, but more the example of pastoral ministry that Paul gives us in this letter. And I've wanted to do this because our day is a day where the kind of intimate, um, invasive, if you will, pastoral shepherding is just fallen completely aside in the contemporary evangelical church. Uh, one pastor that I worked for during seminary actually said out loud to us pastoral staff that we're not shepherds, we're herders uh, in the local church now, that we don't shepherd people, we're not intimate with them, we don't one-on-one -on -one get to know the sheep anymore, we're leaders, we're more CEOs, we're herders. And uh, he's wrong. He's wrong. God calls us to shepherd the church in Acts 20 that his son purchased with his blood to pay careful attention, right? to pay careful attention, to know the sheep, to know the kind of music they enjoy, to, to know their specific sins, to know the the kind of marriages that they're in inside their own household, to know their problems, to know their blessings, to know them personally, to correct them personally, intimately. And Paul sets a perfect example of that in this letter. And so I wanted to preach this letter, not only to preach the content or the, uh, the topics, although they're wonderful, but to set for us, uh, to maybe reset our thinking, to renew our minds on what kind of pastoral ministry we should expect, not only at Pine Grove, but in any local church, to maybe recover in some degree the actual kind of biblical shepherding that we see throughout Scripture. And so I, I want to call you not to pay only attention to the doctrine, which in this is the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, which is incredible, but to the example of pastoral ministry and just ask yourself, is this the kind of pastoral ministry I'm getting? Is this the kind of pastoral ministry I want? One of the things I have found is that when you try to do this kind of a thing, people don't want it. They don't expect it. In fact, I uh, was once talking with somebody in a, a context of helping shepherd a father and shepherding his children and who they're going to marry. And I said, listen, I just want to be pastoral here. And he kind of sat back and said, pastoral? I've had that happen before. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> Uh, it, we don't welcome the kind of intimacy that we're going to see here. Um, and the kind of intimacy that we see here is Paul knows these people. He, he knows them. And he is taking the word of God right home into their specific lies, into their specific sins, into their specific areas of pride. We just want pastors who give nice sermons that make us feel good. That's what we want. We want memorable stories. We don't want shepherds. Shepherds are lower class. They stink. That's not what we're necessarily wanting. We want, we want cool pastors. We, we want pastors that we can brag on. I, I don't know about you, but Paul isn't often bragged on by his sheep. 
They don't like him. The, the saints in 1 Corinthians don't like Paul. They're maligning his ministry. They are wanting to financially support and give themselves to others who won't shepherd them like Paul, who will tickle their ears. And so uh, I ask you to pay attention not only to the doctrine we're going to see, but to the example. All right, let me read these verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 15 to 22. Pray and then talk about the Lord's Supper and this pastoral example. I speak as to sensible people. Uh, Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are the many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Remember, O God, your word to your servants. You have made us hope in your word. God, your word is our comfort in affliction. Your promises give us life. The world, the insolent, deride those who love and follow your word. But God, teach us to fear you so that we might never turn away from your law. God, help us when we think of your rules from of old to take comfort. May indignation seize us because of those who hate your word, who forsake your law. God, your statutes are our songs in our homes as we live these lives. Remember your name, O God, your law, your word, O Lord. Help us to keep your law. May your blessings fall on us because we keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a section here that began in chapter 8 that even goes all the way through chapter 11 that has to do with what we eat. It has to do specifically with uh, eating meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. And there's different contexts that Paul's addressing here. Should we eat meat in our own home that we bought at the uh, market that had been sacrificed to idols? If we go to somebody else's house, we'll see in, uh, in coming weeks, should we eat meat if we go to somebody else's house and they say that this meat has been offered to an idol? What about in the worship service? Should we go to a pagan temple and be okay with eating the meat there? Uh, and and uh, Paul then is taking this dealing with the Corinthians who are very knowledgeable, who are very informed biblically, and they know it. They're very prideful in it. And they're sometimes using this knowledge in a way that harms other believers, especially weaker believers. And some of them that we see in our text have no problem cuddling right up to as close as they possibly can actually participating in the pagan idol worship feasts. Right? They, they're like a child that you say, don't touch that. And you know what children do, right? When you turn their back, they, they just slowly reach out their hand towards They're not going to touch it, but they're just seeing how far they can push the boundary, how close they can get before being disciplined. And probably the desire there is, well, they're just rebellious, but they don't want to be thought by the world to be uh, unsophisticated, to be um, not a part of the in crowd. They, they want to be Christian. They want all the benefits of Christ's death, but they also want to be thought well of by the intelligent, by the sophisticated, by those with lots of letters after their names, PhD and so forth. They, they want to be a part of the crowd and want to be Christian. 
And as you see, Paul knows them. He knows their sin. He knows how full of themselves they are. They know, he knows their spiritual elitism, and he rebukes it. He rebukes it. He provides an example from his own life in chapter 9, where he has a right that he can stand on biblically but won't. He provides a terrifying warning that we saw last week in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, to flee from idolatry. And now Paul moves on to teaching us what is actually taking place in the Lord's Supper and why believers cannot partake both of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Both the Lord's table and the table of demons. He's going to show us that it is, it is okay to eat meat to demons, but it's not okay to, to, to participate in the sacrifice. It's not okay to, to cozy up that close. And, and, and ultimately what he's rebuking is their pride. Look at verse 14, or 15, excuse me. No, I actually do want to start at 14. He, he, he says in 14, therefore, my beloved, these people are dear to him. And as a pastor, I, I can speak for Pastor Jeff and elders and deacons here, we, you are dear to us. This kind of language is true of our hearts towards you. And then in verse 15, Paul has a touch of sarcasm here. Uh, throughout this letter, he has rebuked their thinking so highly of their own wisdom and brain power. And Paul here is saying, you're so wise. You're, you're so understanding. You, you'll have to agree with what I'm about to say because you all know how wise and understanding and intelligent you are. He's, he's already calling on the place of their pride to predispose them to agree with him because what he's about to say is so wise and intelligent. And because they're so wise and so intelligent, they can't disagree with what he's about to say, even though they've been living in a way that is disagreeing with what he's about to say. And so there is this pastoral uh, love in verse 14 that then calls forth the pastoral sarcasm in verse 15. Isn't that true in your life? Those that you love most with it, you're sometimes so sarcastic with. In order to help draw attention to the place of ignorance. That's what Paul's doing here. Right. You're so smart. You're so sensible. Judge then, oh sensible one, for yourself what I say. You can't but agree. Uh, this is really good pastoring. This is real, really good shepherding. Um, he knows his sheep well enough. He knows the stubborn sheep in his fold and is using their own stubbornness as a pastoral tool to get them all ready to agree. <laughs> uh, it's really something here, this kind of love that the Holy Spirit applies in his shepherds. And the issue here has to do with the Lord's Supper. We've, we've seen that already. We'll see it specifically really get going at the end of chapter 11. And verse 16 is maybe the most important verse in all of the Bible to help us understand what is going on in the Lord's Supper. It's where we get the names that we call the Lord's Supper uh, from. And, and this verse is like, I was trying to think of an analogy here, and I thought of those little Russian dolls, you know, that when you open up one, there's another one, and you open up another one, there's another one, and blah, blah, blah. It seems like infinitely. Um, are they Russian? I don't even know if they're Russian. Are they Russian? I think so. Eastern European, Asian kind of dolls. This verse is one of those. It's just packed. It's, it's, there's more here. You, you keep unpacking. It's full. This one verse is very rich. Um, and so let me just talk about the names here. He says, uh, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation? There's two words here, blessing and participation, that the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is basically built upon. The word blessing in the Greek is uh, eulogia, um, eulogy. That's where we get the English word eulogy from. Um, are we having problems? Okay, I just see them scurrying around back 
in the back and just want to make sure we don't have problems. We don't. So uh, a eulogy at a funeral is when somebody gets up and speaks well of the deceased. So a eulogy is to speak well of. Um, uh, this is where the name Eucharist comes from in reference to the Lord's Supper, to communion. Eucharist is to thank well, to, to be very thankful for. And so in the Lord's Supper, we call it the Eucharist because it's a, it's a thanksgiving service. It's, a, it's an opportunity to give thanks. And the elders just read a chapter in a book on the Lord's Supper. And, and one of the things you see in the history of the church that the Lord's Supper celebration was filled to thanksgiving. It began with a prayer of thanksgiving to God, the creator of heaven and earth, a prayer of thanksgiving to God, the redeemer. It, it was filled with thanksgiving. And so our brothers and sisters, let's say in the Episcopal church, refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. It's, a, it's to give thanks to God. And so this cup of blessing, this cup of thanksgiving, this cup that is filled with God's rich blessings that we bless, that we eulogia, that we give thanks for. All right, so thanksgiving should be a major part of our celebration. We should come with hearts brimming with gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. That's, that's a huge part of the Lord's Supper. As I've said so many times, we're not attending a funeral at the Lord's Supper. We're attending a wedding feast. It's filled with joy and gratitude and happiness. And then we have this word that the ESV translates participation. Others might trans translate it sharing in. Communion. This word is a well-known Greek word. You all know this Greek word, koinonia. In fact, a lot of churches are calling themselves Koinonia Church based on this one verse. Koinonia means to share in, to have fellowship in, to have communion. So some call the Lord's Supper communion. We would call it that. Common union. Common union. Common where all the many, all the common, all the many have union. The many in one. In fact, we see that later on. We, there is one bread, verse 17, we who are the many are one body. Communion, that's what the word communion means. Common, many, union, one. And so the many are becoming one. There is this great focus on unity in the Lord's Supper. Our communion, our participation, our... I, the language here is so rich and so full that the language, human language falls short of being able to describe what is taking place in the Lord's Supper in our connection vitally to the real presence of Jesus Christ spiritually by his Holy Spirit. There, this language is, is so much more than like just remembering. It's so much more than um, just merely being present with. There is a intimate connection at the most fundamental vital level in the Lord's Supper with Jesus. That's what this word partaking, this word communion, this word uh, um, fellowship, this word koinonia is communicating to us. Um, and let, let me do something here that might be uncomfortable to some of you. I'm going to criticize another church and their understanding of the Lord's Supper here. Um, we have gotten pushback on this previously. We should all just get along. We should never criticize another church. And I, I just think that's untrue. All right. Um, Paul says later on in verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. He says no to something. If you are in any kind of shepherding, fatherly capacity, at work, in the civil sphere, at home, at church, you know that a major part of your duty is saying no. Any kind of fatherly figure who only says yes all the time is failing. Um, and Paul is saying no to them. And I know it's uncomfortable. And this isn't because we're better than anybody else. But um, the Catholic Church actually holds to the false teaching that Jesus, that, that when 
the body or when the bread in the Lord's Supper at a certain point, it actually is, becomes the physical body of Jesus. And, and that the wine actually becomes the physical blood of Jesus. And if you've ever been to Mass, you've seen it. The priest, at a certain point, tinkles a little bell. And at that point, the the bread is transformed into the actual body and the wine is transformed into the actual blood. Um, and so I want to spend a few moments saying no to that teaching because it's wrong, it's unbiblical, because the Catholic Church says that if you, the, I mean, the, the fundamental conservative Orthodox Catholic Church have historically said that if you don't agree with that interpretation, you're not allowed to take communion with them. So they break communion with those who would disagree here. In fact, in the Council of Trent, it says that any who disagree with it are anathema. They don't have salvation. They're damned. All right? So um, just extend me here the goodwill of what every parent does for his or her children. You explain what is true and you point out what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what you say yes to and what you say no to, um, what is true and what is false. And so the problem is here is that the Bible simply doesn't say what Catholics say. Just, just look. It says the cup of blessing is participation in the blood of Christ. The bread is participation in the body of Christ. So Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remember, remember, this is my body. So he equates the bread somehow with his body. But what does he equate with his blood? If we're just being careful here. He doesn't say the wine, does he? What does he say? The cup. The cup, the cup is my blood. The cup is done as a remembrance of the new covenant in his blood, not, not the wine. And so this Catholic, the reformers always called it superstition because you've ever been to Mass, it, it feels very superstitious. It, it's, it's very superstitious. We were at a recent funeral at a Catholic church and my kids were giggling at it because it was so ghosty. It was so fantastical. Um, when the bell rang and all the smoke and it's so far removed from what Jesus did with his disciples as to be no longer what Jesus did with his disciples. Uh, and so the Bible shows this feast to be very simple. It's, it's very simple. We do not believe that the bread becomes Jesus' body. We do not believe that the wine becomes Jesus' blood physically. We do believe that there is real participation with Jesus in taking of the elements. Jesus said that unless you... Eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He doesn't mean physically, does he? He means that there is some spiritual communion. There is some vital, real connection with Jesus and taking the Lord's Supper by faith. But it isn't actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus rose from the dead, physically ascended to the right hand of the Father physically, where he dwells on high, making intercession with us. And in the Lord's Supper, his body isn't chopped up into a bunch of little bits, and his blood isn't meted out into a bunch of little cups. He is spiritually present with us, <clears throat> and we have real communion with him. And so this one word, participation, describes Christ's presence with us. He, he is here. We all agree there. And he is here in such a way that all of the blessings, all of the benefits of his death and resurrection are ours. And the Lord's Supper is a unique place 
where God in his son is communing with his people by faith through the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to, to differentiate this so that you can see in the Lord's Supper, God by his son is present with us. Enjoy that. That we have a real vital participation in the body and blood of Jesus when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's a wonder. It's awesome. I, I really don't know how to explain it. Have you had times in your life, I've had times like these, when you're with family, with friends, and you're around a table, and, and it's, it's awesome. It's like you lose yourself in the enjoyment of the fellowship with these people. It's like you're one with them. Everything else is gone, but this participation with each other and a common love and bond and enjoyment. And it's like you don't want it to end. It's like if you could just live in that moment, and sometimes you even try to recreate it, and you can't. You can't recapture it. It's that kind of a enjoyment in the Lord's Supper with Jesus, that kind of a participation at a common table with him. And so enjoy it. It's not a mystical, superstitious kind of thing. It's a real, personal, present enjoyment, participation, and sharing in Jesus. We are so one with him. And this is portrayed, or portrayed particularly in the Lord's Supper. What I want to do now is focus on the unity. Verse 17, there is one bread. There, we are many, are one body, for our partake of the one blood. Or uh, one bread. There is a vertical union with the triune God and his people in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died once for all, so we're not replaying his sacrifice on the death in the Lord's Supper. He isn't being crucified again in the Lord's Supper. But all of us, on common footing, no believer more important or better than the other, coming together, one with our God, in the Lord's Supper. The, it's communion. We, are, you, we have this union spiritually in the Holy Spirit with God on high through his Son. There is one bread. We who are many become one body. And so there is this synonym use in the Bible talking about us as his body and the bread at his body and Jesus as if they're kind of the same thing. And, and in the Lord's Supper, this is what's happening. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But I, I don't want to focus mainly on the vertical union we have with God, but the horizontal union we have with each other. We who are the many are one. That's true always, but it's particularly true we see in the Lord's Supper. I want to apply that to what's going on right now. As I said in our time of confession, there, there is probably some real um, disagreement on how we should be responding to this virus. And I've talked to many of you. Some of you think that we should be taking full precautions, total isolation. If you go out, you should be totally masked, all the personal protective equipment. It's good that all these things are shut down. There are those. And then there's others of you who, I don't know if you use the word ridiculous, but you aren't concerned in that way at all. And then I'm sure there's all kinds of gradations between those two ends. And we have all of that kind of diversity in this body, and yet that should never, ever even be a consideration for any kind of division because we have this union in Jesus Christ. Would we come together and take the Lord's Supper as if we're one organism and yet divide over something of a response to a virus? That, that would be to utterly betray the fundamental meaning of the Lord's Supper. It would be to utterly betray the union that Jesus Christ purchased in his death and resurrection for us who are diverse. And so there should be no division over this. We can have difference. And we can have real difference, and we can have real disagreement. But it should never lead to division. It should never lead us to think less of somebody. We might even think that somebody is being harmful to others in it. And we might discuss this with them. We might call them on it, but we're not going to divide over it, ever. And I also want to then apply it to this digital church that we've been doing the last seven or eight weeks. How long have we been doing this? Is it that long? This is eight. I, I want to say this 
tried to say it well, this isn't church, okay? You should not at all be tempted to think that after we're going to be able to come back together, whether or not you think it should happen on the 17th or after the governor's orders are over, no matter what you think, you should never think that TV church is church. It isn't. This isn't, all right? I'm glad that we can do this for the time being. But this is not the gathering of the saints that is envisioned in the Lord's Supper. The kind of presence that we are to have with each other and God. This is not it. You gathering with your families is not church. You gathering in any other organism apart from the local church is not church. We can't settle for this. I was just thinking of, I bet you the churches in China, this would be utterly ridiculous to them. They have all of the technology that we do, and the cost for them gathering is incredibly high. They're actually being hunted. (laughs) And yet they, if you've read some of the counts of how they, the lengths they go together to gather at three in the morning, in the dark, singing in whispers, and, and they could avoid it all and just gather digitally. But they know the biblical teaching of the importance of gathering together physically as the body of Christ, celebrating the Lord's Supper, participating with him and with each other, that they will not do it on their phones or on their TVs or on their tablets. And so when this is over, it might be the 17th for us, Please do not at all ever be tempted to substitute this for that. Because this is no substitute for gathering physically. What I'm saying is, you might be tempted next October. You had a late Saturday night, and you're just going to get up and do church on your TV. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's not church. You might be tempted as a parent with little kids. It's hard to get up and get to church. We're just going to turn on the TV, kids. No. (laughs) No. Facebook Live is not church. Chatting with people over Messenger is not actually relational in this way. We, We can't settle for this. You can't settle for this. Because this kind of participation can't be done digitally. It can for a season when you have to. But it can't. There, there, we're, the many are one body. You're going to separate up that digitally? <clears throat> we are to get together. Do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of. Why? Because the Lord is coming and we need to encourage each other all the more as that day draws near. This is not that kind of encouraging. I can tell you that. As a pastor, this is, I'm glad to do it. I hate it, to tell you the truth. I don't like this at all. I don't like preaching to a camera. I am glad that we can do it for this season. I am grateful to God for the technology. I don't mean to be a whiner here, but this is, I'm preaching shorter shorter sermons, and that should alarm you all. I mean, just because it's nobody here. I'm preaching to nothing. I am imagining you in my brains in front of your TVs, and it hurts. I don't like it. It actually makes me angry. Um, And so let's gather. Now, the last thing we have to touch on is the idolatry here. I don't want you to participate with demons. For all the wisdom of the Corinthians, for how high they think their brains are, they don't understand what's happening behind the pagan idol worship feats. Now, pagan, pagan sacrifice. This might seem so far removed from our American scientific experience, but you know paganism is still a thing in our age, right? There are actually still people who are trying to and have for a long time continue the pagan worship. Pagan, just if you want an example, there is a podcast that I listen to regularly. It's called the Pugcast, P-U-G-Cast. 
And they recently interviewed a woman who grew up in a family that wanted to celebrate paganism and all of the destruction that that works in the world. It is still a thing in our world. All right. In fact, I think our secularism, our anti-spiritual secularism, and what is just another form of paganism. It's just another form of worship. And what the Corinthians were doing were gathering around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrating it. And then, as I said before, just wanting to cozy up as close as they could to their past pagan idol feasts and because they were so high, they're thinking, their idols are no such thing. There's only one God. This doesn't affect me. They're like so many teenagers. Sorry, you teens. Right? That doesn't affect me. I don't listen to the lyrics. Right? We, we do that. We want to close the up just as close as we can because we're so rebellious. And yet, in our rebellion, we think so highly of our spirituality. That's what the Corinthians are doing. Listen, that's you. That's me. We're so full of our spiritual insight, our spiritual genius, that we can't be affected by this. And Paul, relying on Deuteronomy 32.17, says, no, no, yeah, idols are nothing. God is one. But behind the idols are demons. And you can't participate at the table of demons and the table of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is no, like, spiritual um, Switzerland. Like, there is no neutrality. There, there's one of two tables. It's either the table of the Lord or the table of demons. There's no, like, spiritual demilitarized zone. Between North and South Korea, there's this area that is supposed to be no military activity. There's no such thing. It's either Jesus or demons. There are demons in this world, and they're functioning, trying to lure you away from the table of the Lord, or trying to make you think that you can celebrate the Lord's table and just go off into the world and celebrate there too. And that's the lie. We, in our spiritual pride, think we can do both. I'm not affected by the world. I'm better than that. I can participate in any demons. Now, what, do you, what kind of idolatry does he mean here? Well, where do you love the world? And I'm talking about where would it really cost you to lay down this? It would really cost the Corinthians to not participate in the pagan idol worship feasts. It would have... It would have caused their neighbors to think that they were podunk ignoramuses who were just lost their minds. It would have affected them economically in their businesses to not participate in these things. It would have affected them relationally. This, this would have been a high cost for them to say no to going to those things and lingering even around the edges. What is it in your life that if you had to say no to it, would actually cost you something. One example I heard of was smoking in our day. And so Christians, I'm not going to smoke because it's so bad. That doesn't cost you anything. That makes you seem cool today because smoking is anathema today. Like, what would actually cost you something? What would actually, if you had to say no to it, because you want fidelity to Jesus and his table alone, what would cost you something? If you as a woman said no to all of the trappings of the world because you want to serve a husband and build a home and raise children, that might cost you because you have family members and friends who hate biblical sexuality, hate the biblical role of a married motherly woman, and for you to say no to what they're doing, what would it be? I don't know what it is for men. Is it all of the trappings of your hunting or your recreation? All of the latest, greatest things that you have to buy. And if you say no to them, they look on you like, like this, you're right or something. I, I, what is it for you? Maybe it's taking a stand for justice, like 
for this innocent black man who was jogging in a Georgia neighborhood. And as a conservative white Christian, it ain't cool among other conservative white Christians to call that out. You want to maintain your Facebook coolness so you can't call that out and you'll talk about abortion. I don't know. Maybe it's just saying no to the gossip. The idol of choice morsels of wanting inside information into the lives of others. And you actually loving Jesus and participation in his table enough to look a friend in the face and say, I'm not doing that. And you're wrong to do that. Or just walking away from it. I don't know what it is. But you can't participate in both tables. You just can't. Why? Verse 22. Can you imagine if Paul preached a sermon and he was applying, he preached a sermon with these words, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he preaches a a sermon with that in it. And uh, for whatever reason, he has to leave that church and he's applying to another church and they ask for a few sermon examples. And Paul gives them the sermon where he preaches this in it. There, there, there ain't one in a thousand churches in America that would hire him because he said something like this. Because he talked about God's jealousy, his wrath, his displeasure. Because we just have no taste for this truth of God anymore. That God is a jealous God who will allow no other competitors for our devotion, our allegiance, our worship of him. And he ain't playing. And in chapter 10, Paul piled up three examples that show God's great jealousy towards his people, idolatrous hearts, and how he brings severe judgment on them. So he's talking about the fear of God here. We don't talk about that anymore, do we? We don't talk about that in the church anymore. We've got to talk about the love of God. We've got to talk about the compassion of God. We've got to talk about the kindness of God. We've got to talk about the grace of God. Of course! But it's Mother's Day, right? Happy Mother's Day. I wanted to conclude with that. Happy Mother's Day. You, in the Bible, though, it says, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears God, who has a trembling, a fear, a dread of God, is the kind of woman to be praised. But we don't talk about that anymore. We don't talk about that anymore. We can't talk about that, especially not on Mother's Day. So just pretend I didn't say that. But the fear of God is freedom. To involve yourself in idolatry and Demons is enslavement. The fear of God is freedom. The fear of God is joy and blessing. The fear of God for a mother is a house full of kids and the enjoyment of giving your life for those children. And you do that because you fear God and you don't give a rip what other people think about you anymore. The fear of God is daring to have children in this world and trying to raise them to love Jesus terrified of what's going to happen to them. But you're just doing your best because you fear God and you know what is right and you're going to give your children your lives because you fear God. You don't fear what your mom thinks about you. You don't fear what your friends think about you. You fear God. Dads, your kids should be afraid of you. (laughs) They, They should be displeased with you. We fear God. He might discipline us. And what a question that last one is. Are we stronger than he? But don't we sometimes in our fallen thinking think that somehow we can compete with God? That we can do whatever we want and God won't discipline us. So verse 22 is love. We have to. It's pastoral love. 
Brothers, sisters, friends, do not provoke the Lord's jealousy. You are not stronger than him. Let's pray. Father, God Almighty in heaven above, you are infinitely, eternally greater than we. We are creation from dust. Had you not breathed life into us, we would have no life. Would you not continue to sustain and uphold our lives, we would have no life. Would your son not have shed his blood on the cross, we would have no reconciliation, eternal life with you. We are utterly and only dependent on you for everything. In you alone, we live and move and have our being. And we are grateful for this. We thank you. We thank you for this communion, this participation we have in you. Keep us from idols, O oh God. Keep us from thinking that we can cozy up to you and to the world. That we don't ever have to take up our cross and follow you. We don't ever have to walk a narrow way, but we can walk a broad, plush way and think that we're walking to you. Forgive us for this kind of thinking. May we see you as the only true, living, great God who alone has sacrificed himself, his son, for us. And we might give all of our fidelity, all of our allegiance, all of our worship to you alone. God, even more so, give us tender hearts to those places in our lives that we are courting idols, courting demons. May you help us, and may others love us enough to show them. Help us, oh God. Help us now to sing of your greatness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Have the faith to consider God as a jealous God. He is jealous over us. He is jealous for his glory. He, he is a jealous God. And his jealousy is loving. He is jealous of the Father for the purity of his daughters. <laughs> he is jealous as a, a father for the courage and fidelity of his sons. He is jealous for us to dwell with him in all eternity and he will crush anything between that and us. And so his jealousy is a jealous of have faith to see God as such. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father Almighty, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who indwells us all be with you all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.